Welcome to The Daily Bite with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Let's take a look at Ezekiel chapter 9. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. And behold, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand, and with them was a man clothed in linen, with a writing case at his waist. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub on which it rested to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writing case at his waist. And Yahweh said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him, and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark, and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. Then he said to them, Defile the house, and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. So they went out and struck in the city. And while they were striking, and I was left alone, I fell upon my face, and cried, Ah, Lord Yahweh, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, and the city full of injustice. For they say, Yahweh has forsaken the land, and Yahweh does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. And behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing case at his waist brought back words, saying, I have done as you commanded me. This is the word of the Lord. As I've read through this text a few times, one of the things that strikes me is, well, jumps out to me and, and makes me ponder, is this happening? Right, So we are coming off of chapter 8, which was a vision where God took the spirit of Ezekiel, whisked him over in the spirit to Jerusalem, where he then showed him the fourfold abominations of the Israelites, the Judaites, in the temple of God. And even at that, you could stand here and ask the question, did God take him there in a vision, as in he's showing him what's going on, for the purpose of teaching and instruction and, and so that Ezekiel can speak against these things? Or is, has he taken him there and shown him the actual events that are going on in the temple at that very moment? Like, are these men really there in that present time doing the very thing that chapter 8 said they were doing? And then chapter 9 follows it up. Chapter 10 will follow that, right? You know, chronological order, you get it. But chapter 9 follows it up with the idea that the Lord is going to then judge them. In chapter 10, he's going to leave the temple. And in judging them here in chapter 9, smiting them, right? Taking their lives, ending their lives. So again, it fits the context of the vision that started in the previous chapter. So we would likely believe then that this is this is a prophetic vision. This is not happening in that moment but as i you know read through the commentary uh concordia commentary from horace hummel 
It's a point that he really didn't pick up on. At least I didn't note it as I was going through. So we're going to look at this today as we study the text as a vision from the Lord, a vision about the judgment that he is about to bring upon Jerusalem. But by looking at it in that way, we also will be able to see how it is a vision that also speaks to the end, to the last day, to the time when Christ prepares to return and redeem his remnant of this creation. So look for that connection as we go through the text. All right, verse 1, God, he, cried in my ears with a loud voice. So this is the, the appearance of the form of a man that is burning with gleaming fire on top, gleaming metal, uh, and, and fire on the bottom below the waist. And we've talked about that man as the glory of Yahweh himself, uh, the pre-incarnate Christ in previous chapters. So this is God raising his voice to Ezekiel, which is interesting. And I don't honestly know how to search God's word for that happening. Like, how often has God raised his voice? I don't know the answer. So for those of you listening in, if you know a good way to search for that, or if you happen to know other instances where God did raise his voice, let me know. That's something I'd love to learn um, to see. Well, I don't think I'd want to see God raise his voice. That's a different story. Anyway, um, we continue verse 1. What does he actually say with this loud voice? Bring near the executioners of the city, each with his destroying weapon in his hand. So if this is happening like immediately in the context as Ezekiel is there in this vision, we'd look at these executioners as being angels of the Lord sent to do the Lord's work, in this case, judge. If this is prophetic to be an indication of what's to come, you could still view them as angels, but you also might view them as the actual adversary that the Lord uses in that place, the Babylonians that are to come. And so six men come from the north, the upper gate. The north is where God's judgment comes from. As he brings enemy armies down, they come from the north, typically speaking, against Jerusalem. Um, as I mean, Israel was one of the primary enemies that they had all those couple hundred years. It's also where Ezekiel first entered in that vision in chapter 8 into the inner court of the temple. They are prepared, right? They each have their weapon for slaughter in their hands. They're ready to, to go to war. But with them is a seventh man, a man clothed in linen, a writing case at his waist. Now, a writing case, we think today of, of writing, we think of picking up a pen or a pencil, a uh, piece of paper, post-it note, whatever it may be. Actually, a lot of our children probably think of the digital age um, and picking up their phone or their tablet or whatever it might be that they would want to write on with their finger. But, you, you know, our picture of this is different uh, than it may have been back then. Writing utensils are not that advanced um, at that point in history because, again, this is close to 600 B.C. We're probably in 592, maybe 591 at this point um, of the text itself. Um, 
the Lutheran Study Bible notes that an Egyptian artwork at uh, reasonably around that time, um, such as this, might be like a board, a wooden board that could hold a pen in it and a small, like a little small vial of ink of some kind. Anyway, what's this man for? What is he to do? We're going to see that in verse 5. But before we do, we can ask the question, who is he? So if we were talking about the first six, possibly as angels, possibly as the coming destroyers that are the Babylonians, who is the seventh man? And the Jewish tradition holds that this is one of the archangels, one of the highest of the angels, um, that is Gabriel. A lot of Christians have theorized that this might be the pre-incarnate Christ. It would be hard to see this as Jesus and also to see the one crying out with a loud voice as Jesus, but that's a Trinitarian thing and it's hard to understand how the Trinity works. Uh, the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, he is Lord. We worship him. I don't know that I have an answer to you for you at this point. Uh, maybe it'll become more clear as we look at future chapters here on just who this seventh man is. But we do get to see in this chapter what he does. Again, that comes shortly. So let's look at the rest of this paragraph, which is that they go and stand beside the bronze altar. That is, they've come inside the temple courtyard. They've come into that inner courtyard where the bronze altar stands. That is the altar that the Israelites would have used to offer sacrifices to the Lord, burnt offerings to the Lord. Um, in, in recent years, it has been pushed to the side, and, and it was King Ahaz who constructed an, a new altar there of exquisite design stolen from another nation. Um, the design, not the actual altar he built after visiting um, an enemy nation. He built an altar to their god rather than to his own. This does, however, still sound like the bronze altar, the one that Solomon himself would have had constructed um, prior to this event. So that's our context here as we begin to see this occur. Now in verse 3, the glory of the God of Israel leaves the cherub, so an angel, the cherub is an angel, on which it rested. That sounds to me like God was riding upon that angel. Interesting picture. Um, we also have the suggestion um, in, in the past here that this could be a reference to the, the actual Ark of the Covenant, God's throne inside that temple, which had the, the cherubs, cherubim, uh, on each, one on each side of it. Um, I lean towards the former, the idea that this is the Lord. His glory in this vision was resting upon uh, those, well, those creatures, right? We haven't seen them recently, but we're going to see the cherubim brought up again in chapter 10. So as we continue here, God calls out to the man, who's the seventh man, clothed in linen, and he gives him a task here in verse 4. Go through the city, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations committed in it. So find all of those who are repentant, basically. Find all of those who oppose these sacrifices, these false idol worships that are happening in the temple. Find all of those who are grieved by this. Mark them. 
This is a conversation you want to pick up on with your children. Does this sound familiar? Can you think of any other time that God marked his people, that God used something like this to save them from being destroyed by his judgment? The immediate reference I think many might think of here would be the Exodus account. The lambs sacrificed at twilight, their blood painted on the doorposts, so that when God came to destroy the firstborn in every household in the land of Egypt, if he saw that blood, he passed over that house. Now, there's also the connection to the book of Revelation as well that we don't want to miss. Um, the idea that the Lord has has also marked his own people. Uh, you, you normally hear about the mark of the beast from Revelation. This is kind of opposite of that. And instead, we'd really look to our baptisms, right? As in the process of baptism in the LCMS, as I as a pastor baptize a person, I make the sign of the cross both upon their forehead and their heart. And I say the words um, that I do this to mark you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified. And so now God passes over our sin, right? Uh, God sees not our sin, but he sees his son in us and through us. And we are spared from, from this devastation. Now, I do want to share with you here as we look at verse 4 and verse 5. Um, verse 4, these notes are coming from the Lutheran Study Bible. And I thought they were just, they were fantastic. And I wanted to not miss them. So, First, in verse 4, the study Bible quotes Cyprian, one of the early church fathers, on this. He said, The sign pertains to the passion and blood of Christ, and that whoever is found in this sign is kept safe and unharmed. When Egypt was smitten, the Jewish people could not escape except by the blood and the sign of the Lamb. So also, when the world shall begin to be desolated and smitten, whoever is found in the blood and the sign of Christ alone shall escape. So that wonderful connection again, both to Christ's Christ period, but also more specifically Cyprian to the Lord's Supper that flows from Christ's death on the cross. Then we also have this, I'm just going to read the whole uh, comment that they have on verse 5. The other six men are to slaughter pitilessly and spare no one. God's desire is that all shall be saved. Uh, see chapter 18 verse 32. But his justice requires that unrepentant sinners must die. A one-sided emphasis that God is love dare not eclipse the severity of his wrath. Christ's cross is the maximal expression of both. The cross of Jesus. That was the end of the quote. The cross of Jesus is both God's wrath and God's love. They are both real they are both part of who he is, his character, his, his righteous judgment, and his great love for us. So don't miss out on that. He wants to save people, but he also, as God, as judge of heaven and earth, he, he judges them. It is his role to do. All right, so as we keep looking at this text then, um, the angel uh, or, or whoever this seventh man is, is going to do his work that he has been given to do. And as he is going about doing that, God now sends those six men to slaughter, to do their work, to show no pity. Uh, verse 6, to kill anyone except anyone who has the mark. So the judgment of God falls on all, young and old, men and women, children alike. There is no spare 
There is no being spared from God's judgment. It is deserved by all, right, young and old. It is deserved even by those who have not yet left the womb. We have all rebelled, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as we read in Paul's letter to Rome. But not the ones on whom is the mark. So again, great connection to our baptism, also back to the the Exodus account. Begin from my sanctuary. So this is flowing out from God's throne in the temple. And it picks up very well with chapter 10 that he's leaving the temple. That movement flows then as you think about it. God leaving his judgment throne, his place from in the midst of them, he goes out from there and he just keeps going. He's gone. So they begin with the elders who were before the house. That could be a reference to verse 16 or verse 11 of chapter 8. The men in verse 16 are not identified as elders, um, but they are identified 25 men standing at the entrance of the temple. The men in verse 11 yesterday were very specifically called elders, so we could connect to there as well. Slain, and that defiles the house. That's the part there, verse 7 to defile the house, to make it unclean. Uh, The dead are unclean. If you touch the dead, you're unclean. And so killing someone in the temple makes the temple, the house of God, unclean. And this is what Jesus refers to in Matthew 23, verse 35, as he's announcing the seven woes over the Pharisees and the scribes. The seventh and final woe includes that they shed the blood of Zechariah between the altar and the sanctuary. So might actually be in the temple, but if not, it was right in front of it because the altar stands before it. And so you've left the altar, you're moving towards walking into the temple. The sanctuary would be the holy of holies, the most holy place. You also have a reference to Pilate in Luke 13, who may well have actually killed Jewish people in the temple as they were making sacrifices at that time. Now, They went, they struck, they did their job. And Ezekiel cries out, Ah, Lord Yahweh. Just the same words that he used when he cried out back in chapter 4 when God had told him he had to cook his food over human, human excrement, human dung. Will you destroy all the remnant of Israel? Ezekiel is mourning the judgment of God, and, and rightly so. Um, we, we don't want to see death. God does not want to see death. God's answer in verses 9 and 10 will make it sound as though, yes, he is going to destroy them all. But the reality is, no, he's not. And that's verse 11 that comes back. So 9 and 10 first, they, they deserve it. That's the answer, right? The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. Full of blood is the land. Full of injustice is the city. The elders from chapter 8, verse 2, um, God quotes them uh, with this phrase here in verse 9. What they have said about him And he will not spare. He will not have pity. He's going to bring their deeds upon their heads. What would become of you? What would become of me if we were only left to our sin? We would be destroyed. We would die. Plain and simple. But the Lord spares. And that's what turns into chapter, or sorry, verse 11. Right? Again, the man who had the writing case and went out to make the mark on people, he comes back and he says, I have done as you commanded me. So there are those in, in this judgment, those who will be spared. 
those who have been marked, who have been set aside, who are a remnant. So the answer to Ezekiel's question is no, the Lord has not wiped out all of his people. He has spared those who were repentant, those who grieved the tragedy of the events in Jerusalem. The Lord has spared you, the Lord has spared me, and this is a wonderful thing that we can rejoice in. So a great opportunity today to talk about um, the wonderful connection between the Exodus Passover here and then also our baptisms, that you are now marked by Christ as his own and thus spared from the Lord's judgment on the day he returns.